Good morning. Welcome. Um, we will, uh, I will, I will read you a koan this morning. Uh, it may sound familiar to people. Uh, I'll start with Master Ingo's introduction, and then the main case, and then we'll, uh, I'll read the verse, and then offer some comments. So, <clears throat> Ingo's introduction starts like this. He says, holding the sharpest sword straight out before him, he cuts through the nest of entanglements before its point. He hangs the bright mirror high and in the midst of a phrase brings forth the seal of Varikana. Where the heart field is most secret and intimate, he dons his robes and eats his food. Where heavenly powers have free play, how can there be any way to approach? Have you understood? Look at the following words below. Main case. Before each meal, Master Kingyu himself would bring the rice bucket to the monk's hall, dance and laugh loudly and say, little bodhisattvas, come and eat your rice. Uh, Master Secho later said, although he did it like that, he was not being cordial. Later, and this is about 30 years later, another monk asked another master named Choke. Long ago, a monk said, little bodhisattvas, come and eat your rice. What was his meaning? Choke said, it was a sort of grace before the meal. And then the verse. In the shadow of the white clouds, great laughter. He takes it with both hands and gives it to others. If they were cubs of the golden-maned lion, they would see what he was doing 3,000 miles away. So that's the end of the, the case. <clears throat> so this, this case comes to mind every year for me. And I've commented on before, I think some of you have heard this case before, if you have, um, well, actually, I count on everybody forgetting what I say, <laughs> so, that, so that I can repeat myself. But in case you haven't forgotten, um, don't worry, at the end of this talk, there will be a, a new story for you that I have not shared before. So, of course, next week is Thanksgiving, um, a time when we ideally um, slow down and spend time with the people that we love and care for, including Sangha here, and express in one way or another, express our Thanksgiving or gratitude. And, and yet, like so many American holidays, it's been co-opted by consumerism and gluttony greed, disconnected from that original intention of the holiday. And no, the original intention has nothing to do with pilgrims and Indians <laughs> and racism and all of that. And yet it doesn't exclude it either. So as practitioners, I think we're called on to find 
that original intention of what Thanksgiving is about. And just like, um, just like Thanksgiving being co-opted, I think one of the hard, one of the struggles that American Buddhism is going through and will continue to face is its own uh, possibility of being co-opted by consumerism, right? I'm waiting for the day that we start to refer to Zen practitioners as consumers of the Dharma, (laughs) right? It would not surprise me if one day we heard that phrase from somebody. But really this practice, joking aside, is for us to clarify our own true nature so that we can guide others on the path. And each of the practices, you know, our Zazen, of course, our walking, kinhin, doksan, chanting, um, listening to a talk or, or giving a talk, they're all meant to help us connect with that original intention of thanksgiving. You know, what is that original intention? What's the original purpose? Well, when we talk about walking, the original purpose of walking is walking. Yeah, the purpose of sitting is sitting, right? Each thing has its own integrity, not weighed down with so much meaning. But when our minds complicate it, right, we lose sight of that very basic fact. And in Engo's introduction to the case today, he says that very point. He says, holding the sharpest sword straight out before him, he cuts through the nest of entanglements before its point. He hangs the bright mirror high in the midst of a phrase, brings forth the seal of Varikana. So Varikana in Sanskrit, uh, Varikana means the illuminator, one who illuminates, is one of the mythical Buddhas. You could say that what Varikana does is shine the light of awareness, illuminating. And this is what that practice, this practice is about. The real power of our practice is to be able to cut through our own entanglements. That nest of entanglements of thought, that sort of thick haze of thought. And what is it that does the cutting? Just this breath. Just move. It's our method. And as soon as we start thinking about our practice rather than doing it, we end up sort of sheathing that sword and we add to the haze. So I, I always want to, you know, come back to the question of how often do we take advantage of that very sharp sword that you have all been given? How often do you cut through your thoughts, your doubts, all of those entanglements that you face each day with this practice 
People that do find a natural gratitude that arises. And of course, most people in this world know nothing about this practice, this very basic practice. And it's very heartbreaking, actually, to think of how many people have no clue that they can actually work with their own minds, that there is something other than that nest of entanglements. So, so many of our tools are just about this. The clappers that Linda struck, the Han that Pete hit, the Kyosaku in Sashin, the encouragement stick. <laughs> Doksan, right? <clears throat> These are all meant to help us cut through, to derail that ever persistent, troubling thought train. I was thinking about this and writing this and came across a, um, a prayer, which I thought was appropriate because it comes from the Jewish tradition. It goes like this. Disturb us, Adonai. Ruffle us from our complacency. Make us dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with the peace of ignorance the quietude which arises from a shunning of the horror, the defeat, the bitterness, and the poverty, physical and spiritual, of humans. Shock us, Adonai. Deny us the false Shabbat, which gives us the delusions of satisfaction amid a world of war and hatred. Wake us, O God, and shake us, from the sweet and sad poignancies rendered by half-forgotten melodies and rubric prayers of yesteryears. Make us know that the border of the sanctuary is not the border of the living and the walls of your temples are not shelters from the winds of truth, justice, and reality. Disturb us, O God, and vex us let not your Shabbat be a day of torpor and slumber. Let it be a time to be stirred and spurred to action. <clears throat> I came across a, a YouTube documentary. I was looking for any video of Bokokuji, which many of you know is the temple in Japan where Tongan Roshi was abbot for close to 60 years and we're studying his book in two, on Tuesday nights. And I did come across a video, pretty poor quality, but to my surprise in watching that video, there was a um, interview, just a couple of seconds of an interview with a, a woman who I knew. She was in residence with me at the Rochester Zen Center back in the 90s. I knew she had actually gotten ordained at Bukokuji, which at the time was, you know, pretty surprising because she was um, very frail, very old, and I would have imagined that it would have been um, too much for her to endure monastic life in Japan. No central heating, um, 
although the food is good. That's about all that you have to look forward to in monastic life at times. But she thrived there. You know, another example of how my preconceptions got it wrong. But I remember when we were in residence together, she would get her cushions from the storage room before an early morning sit around 5.30 or so. And I would often encounter her in the cushion storage room and she would beam me with a smile. I hated that smile. <laughs> I hated anything at 5.30 in the morning. But especially that smile. I, th I thought, how on earth can you smile like that so early? But in looking on it, back on it, her smile, her demeanor, is just what I needed. It woke me up. Not just literally, but really from my own suffering, right? And we all need to be woken up. This is what that prayer is talking about. We need practices and moments. We can be encouraged to practice through these reminders, through our formal practices. But what practice can't give us is a motivation. That has to come from us. That has to be discovered. So what is it that motivates you in your practice? Why are you here this morning? A Soto priest, um, American Soto priest named Domyo Burke, she wrote this. When I ask myself, what do I really want? I might put it in terms of progress and practice or an insight or something like that. Ultimately, what I really want is to be appreciative of the miracle of life as much as possible. Ideally, every moment, not that I'm expecting that, I wish I could live as if my life were going to end tomorrow and be grateful for each thing. If my life were going to end tomorrow and I was driving along and I ran into a red light, I would probably think, wow, I'm alive at a red light. Isn't that remarkable? How often when we see this color of light, we all stop? Isn't it awesome that I'm alive right now to wait? So we need to think of gratitude as a practice to help us, to stay connected with what we really want in this world, like that pair of clappers or that Han, that beaming smile in the morning. I think it would be an interesting experiment if all of us took times during the day just to stop and say thank you. Not for anything in particular, but simply as a way of cutting through. Reminding me of the famous lines of Master or Meister Eckhart who said, if the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, 
that would be enough. So in this case, this koan, it reminder, it says this, before each meal, Master Kinyu himself would bring the rice bucket to the monk's hall, dance and laugh loudly and say, little bodhisattvas, come eat your rice. Secho later said, although he did it like that, he was not being cordial. And then later still, Choke was asked by a monk, little bodhisattvas, come and eat your rice. What was his meaning? Choke said, that was a sort of grace before the meal. So there, there's a lot that can be said about this case. The main thrust, I would say, is in Secho's comment. Although he did it like that, he wasn't being cordial. Another translation says he wasn't being kind. Why? What does that mean? I mean, certainly he was serving his monks, imploring them to come eat. But we take that question up in our koan practice in the doksan room. Short of that, we could say that Kinyu's actions were like any practice. In that, again, they implore us to show up. Come eat your rice. Walk the dog. Get out of bed. Drink your coffee. Do your taxes. Come, little bodhisattvas. I think so many of us need a cheerleader once in a while. Encouragement. But much of the time, the reason we need so much encouragement is because we get discouraged by our own thoughts. Right? Another bowl of rice. Damn. Another day doing this job. But our encouragement should be that sharp sword. Our encouragement should be a reminder that we always have the ability to cut that off and return to just this. But we have to use it. As Mumon says, cut off the mind road. King Yu, he didn't need a reminder. This was his <clears throat> life naturally unfolding. It would have been quite unusual to, um, <clears throat> for any master to, in that day, to serve the monks themselves, not to mention the dancing and laughing. And yet that was his natural expression. So the last part of the koan says that later, a monk asked Choke, what was Kinyu's meaning? Apparently, this took place around again 30 years after Kinyu's death. I'm sure, like these days, although without social media back then, the stories like this circulated and it became a kind of gossip. I heard about this uh, monk, Kinyu, who used to dance and laugh. What was that all about? And of course, Choke says it was 
him saying grace. Right? What is the purpose of grace? I'll maybe just leave that for you to figure out. But grace itself is what happens to us when we stop needing to look for meaning. You know the old proverb, um, ours is not to wonder why, ours is just to do and die. Has everybody heard that? Now, I used to think of that as quite an ominous statement. It can be. But it also can be a very good practice. We don't always have to ask why. In fact, perhaps the less, the better. Why am I doing this? Why do I have to go to work? Why, why, why? And it's not just about looking for a why, but what about looking for anything at all? When we have moments when we're not looking for anything, then we're free. When you're not looking for anything else, not looking for joy, not looking for contentment or happiness, we're free. We're not involved in the equation of getting and giving. We don't need a reason, a why to say thank you. In fact, when we take thank you out of the context of getting, right? Because that is where we say it. Those pesky little dualities, right? Gain and loss, right and wrong, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. That's what the Buddha talked about. He called those the eight worldly winds that blow us from place to place. When we take thank you out of that, what happens? It's simply an embrace. So this is all about how to be with our practice and our life in a way that's going to naturally produce gratitude. And when we stop trying to get anything. A student once asked Master Yunman, I'm reaching for the light. Please help me. Yunman said, forget about the light. Give me the reaching. Right? Give me what you are now, not what you want later. If you're reaching, that's it. Just reach. So if we can take Yunman's words to heart, we ex would experience gratitude naturally. And so here is that story that I want to end with today. It's a little funky of a story, <clears throat> but that's why I like it. It's from a book called The River Why by David Duncan. And it says this, there was an old Taoist who lived in a village in ancient China named Master Hu. 
or who? Who loved God and God loved who? And whatever God did was fine with who? And whatever who did was fine with God. They were friends. They were such good friends that they kidded around. Who would do stuff to God like call him the great Claude? That's how he kidded. That was fine with God. God would turn around new stuff to who? Like give him warts on his face, <laughs> wens on his head, arthritis in his hands, a hunch in his back, canker sores in his mouth, and gout on his feet. That's how he kidded. That God, what a kidder. But it was fine with who? Master Who grew lumpy as a toad. He grew crooked as a cherry wood. He became a human pretzel. <coughs> you clawed, he shouted at God, laughing. That was fine with God. He'd send Who a right leg 10 inches shorter than his left to show he was listening. And Who would laugh some more and walk around in little circles showing off his short leg saying to the villagers ha ha see how the great clod listens how lumpy and crookedy and ugly he's making me he makes me laugh and laugh what are friends for and the people of the village would look at him and wag their heads for sure enough old who looked like an owl's nest he looked like a swamp. He looked like something the dog rolled in. And he wrinkled at his people. He winked, excuse me, at his people and looked up at God and shouted, Hey, Claude, what's next? And splot, out popped a fresh wart. <laughs> the people wagged their heads till their tongues wagged too. They said, poor Master Who has gone crazy. And maybe he had. Maybe God sent down craziness along with the warts and wens and hunch and gout. What did who care? It was fine with him. He loved God and God loved who. And who was the crookedest, ugliest, happiest old man in all the empire until the day he whispered, hey, Claude, what now? And God took his line in his hand and drew him right into himself. That was fine with who? What are friends for? For me, who and Master King Yu are one and the same. Dancing, singing, laughing. A life of gratitude. Thank you for listening.